This is Top Landing Gear. And welcome to Top Landing Gear Full Flaps and the full-length interview with Ian Whittle, son of Sir Frank Whittle, the man credited with one of the greatest inventions of the modern age, something that changed the world forever, the jet engine. Ian is a pilot himself and flew the Gloucester Meteor in RAF service, Britain's first jet fighter, powered by the very engines that his father had invented. Well, James and I had the enormous pleasure of visiting Ian at his Surrey home almost 85 years to the day since the first successful test run of his father's jet engine. Well, Ian speaks with such passion and enthusiasm, not to mention incredibly detailed knowledge. You don't get much closer to touching history than this. I hope you enjoy. As Ian was so generous with his time, we've split the interview into two parts. So here's part one, Keep an eye out on the socials for part two, or it may already be there now. Ian, um, it's terrific to be here with you in your glorious old cottage in the heart of Surrey. Don't um, call it a cottage, it's too big to be a cottage. <laughs> Surrey house, house with an additional cottage outside. Yeah, you're quite right. I beg your pardon. But you are the son of the man who invented the, the jet engine. I'm sure you're enormously proud of that accolade but does it get a little bit tiresome always being called the son of um not really i've got used to it now <laughs> i um yeah it's just, I, i'm a bit ambivalent about it because uh, i haven't invented anything in my life except a game of three-dimensional noughts and crosses oh, and then right. i found out that somebody else had invented it anyway so <laughs> that was a bit of a flop <laughs> well i'm very much like the invention of the jet engine i mean does your did your father regard himself as the inventor of the jet engine? Because that's how he is referred to in general parlance, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I don't really think he was very happy about that. Um, I think latterly, after he proposed the turbojet, and I don't know when, he found out that Maxime Guillaume in France had proposed the gas turbine for uh, aeronautical applications as a jet engine in 1921 and uh, uh, but of course the thing was that Maxime Guillaume proposed the idea without backing it up with any form of calculation to demonstrate the feasibility of the idea so that's the big difference between Frank Whittle and Maxime Guillaume that Frank Whittle not only proposed the turbojet as a form of technology to propel aeroplanes Uh, and the best way to apply the gas turbine to aeronautics, but he also demonstrated by calculation that it was feasible. He showed that it would work, and he worked out the scantlings of an engine. Mm. And the engine that he proposed, and the, the way it was, cons- would, was consisted of um, a, a double, uh, two-stage, single-sided centrifugal compressor with, in his case, two turbines in his initial proposal, is exactly the same as the Rolls-Royce design for the Dart engine that came out after the end of the Second World War. So Frank Whittle, in 1929, was in fact proposing what was later on, many years later, a very successful design for a gas turbine engine used for aeronautical application. Mm. That was a turboprop, in fact, That was indeed a turboprop, and it had three turbines, um, three turbines, uh, uh, three stages of turbine, mm. but it, otherwise it's exactly the same as his, his 1929 proposal. Mm. And the Dart engine came under design in 1945 and came into operation in 1949. I think we're still flying in 1980. 
89, wasn't it? I, well, I think so. I flew Viscounts, which had four, uh, because, uh, sorry, Rolls Royce Dart engines, <laughs> and they were brilliant. I got yeah. two or three thousand hours on those. Um, but whether there are any darts flying now, I don't know, because the Avro 748 doesn't fly no, anymore. Right, yeah. Fokker, wasn't it one of the Fokkers used to have them as well, I think? Yes, one of the Fokkers definitely did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fokker Friendship yeah. had the darts, I think. Um, but I don't think there are any Viscounts no. still flying. Had a real uh, whistle to it, mm. the dart, didn't did it? Did a bit, it? Very yeah. It's like an old-fashioned jet. Yes, yeah, yeah, did. absolutely. Yes, that's right. The... Um, and the other person, of course, who was working on the jet engine around the same time as your father was Hans von Ohain in, in Germany. But I don't think either was aware of the other person's work. Were Not they? at all. Hans von Ohain, it is. They oh. pronounce it Ohain because that's the way the Germans pronounce it. But it's written H-A-I-N. <laughs> so you and I say Ohain. But we're wrong. <laughs> it's right, so a big um, right. But Hans von Ohain uh, had the... You see, Hans von Ohain began work on his turbojet really several years after the Germans had had access to the, the patent. Mm-hmm. The patent was registered in Germany in the, in the Berlin Patent Office on the 14th of August. 19th. That was your father's patent? Yes, right. that was registered in the Berlin Patent Office on the 14th of August 1931. Right. Hans von Ohain was still a young student at Göttingen then and wasn't thinking in terms of turbojets, but his tutorials will have included then, uh, afterwards in 1932, 33 and so on, they would have included rocketry, turbojet, um, ramjet, ducted fanjet, turboprop, and one other that I can't think of right now. I know there were six alternatives. Oh, pulsejet, which was a German invention of 1930, I think, Herr Schmidt. So... Uh, they were thinking of six alternatives to the piston engine for aero propulsion in Germany, if you like, between 1935 and 1945, an ICEZ decade. Mm-hmm. But uh, even before that, they're very keen on alternatives to the piston engine, whereas the British were a bit laid back about the whole thing. Mm. And what was, why do you think it was, was that because of the sort of how well, if you like, the Spitfire was doing at its job, getting the speeds it was getting and. Um, all out of a, a highly boosted piston engine. He, at the time that he thought of the tur- uh, mm. of the turbojet, he had been flying the Siskin fighter, mm. yeah. which had uh, an early supercharger. It was a mechanically driven supercharger rather than a turbo supercharger, and he'd studied the the centrifugal blower that was used in the in the uh, British type of um, supercharger of the day. Yeah. And he'd become very familiar with the characteristics and the dynamics of the centrifugal compressor. And this led him, when he thought of the turbojet, this Mm -hmm. led him into using the centrifugal type compressor. Because he knew without any shadow of doubt, and he was quite right too, Mm -hmm. that if he went for the axial, he'd be in deep trouble before he even started. And... Do you want me to explain why? Well, is this the axial flow? <laughs> well, the axial compressor had, in its time, tremendous difficulties. And I say, say, do you want me to explain those difficulties, or right. do you think it would bore everybody? No, 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 let's get it We can always cut it out. Yeah. Well, listen, <laughs> <laughs> on the front of my little aeroplane, I've got a thing called a propeller, you may have noticed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this is actually an axial fan. My propeller on my little simple aeroplane yeah. is fixed pitch yeah. and it's, it's aerodynamically designed to be nice and efficient at a certain speed, around 2,500, 2,700 RPM. Mm-hmm. An axial compressor, as you, I'm sure, well know, consists usually of a series of stages of discs. Mm-hmm. Each disc has, I don't know, 20 or 30 blades on it each blade on each disc being identical to its neighbour, exactly designed to produce an optimum performance at one speed. Mm. If a simple axial compressor used for a power generation where the machine runs at a constant RPM, like, say, 10,000 RPM, and it's just generating, what, electricity or whatever, Mm. is fine. 
because once you can get it started, you get it up to optimum uh, speed and it sits there at that speed all day, all night, for in, weeks. In a controlled environment. In a contro- and in a, exactly, yeah. in a controlled environment, so constant <clears throat> temperature, mm-hmm. no disturbance of air over the air intake, yeah. and it's great. Right. But you get an axial compressor, you stick it in an aero engine, if mm-hmm. you don't know better, A, you can't start the darn thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you do start it, it's terribly inefficient until it reaches its optimum RPM. Then it's great, smashing. Now, the German jet engines, for example, at the end of the war, when we captured their aeroplanes and we analysed their jet engines, Mm -hmm. the Junkers Jumo 004B, and we looked at their... That was on the ME262. Yes. When we looked at their axial compressors, they were pathetically Mm. uh, inadequate. They used a sort of a bullet in the jet pipe moving backwards and forwards with throttle movement in order to create back pressure mm. so that the axial compressor operated at the lower RPMs. Mm. And then the, the plug in the jet pipe went backwards as the throttle was opened and then they would get full power and full mm. RPM f- for normal flight. Yeah. And it, was, it, it worked, but it was very difficult, very difficult to operate. So the pilots had a pretty rough old time. Well, they lost quite a lot of the pilots, didn't they? Oh, hell of a lot. Yes, they lost, they lost more pilots fl- trying to fly the ME-262 than the ME-262 embarrassed amongst the Allied forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was terrible, the, yeah. the, the death rate there. But going back to the mm. original days, my father was conscious that the axial compressor would be an exceedingly difficult way to get in on the bottom, la- bottom rung mm. of the ladder. He knew that the centrifugal compressor was sturdy, Known technology, easy to manufacture, yeah. uh, resistant to foreign object damage, yeah. which is yeah. very important, but above all, resistant to icing. Yeah. And icing, as pilots yeah. know, yes. you know, you both know, and yeah. I know, is a, is a pilot's enemy. Yeah. And uh, so he, he thought, centrifugal, that's the way to go. We know about centrifugal, let's yeah. go for that. Yeah. Okay. In theory, the axial would be better. You have lots of stages of axial, mm-hmm. and you're going to get a greater compression ratio in the combustion chambers once you get the thing up to optimum yeah. RPM. But for starting, running the engine up and down from far high speed to low speed and so on, it's better to go for the centrifugal. Mm-hmm. So he chose the centrifugal. Amazing, isn't it? And in order to make this happen, to build this engine... I mean, he had to go through a heck of a lot of swings and roundabouts to to get help and support. I mean, do you think he got a fair amount of support from from the powers that be, such as the government, the the maybe the Ministry of Aircraft Production, and indeed the RAF? Because we must remember that, of course, he was in the RAF as a pilot, and he was yeah. a very very good pilot too. Your father, yeah, wasn't he? Was a good he? Pilot. He, he was assessed as above the average to exceptional when he left Cranwell mm-hmm. College. Um, but but no, he had no help whatsoever from the British authorities. When when he proposed his turbojet in 1929, he first showed it to his commanding officer, who was a group captain, Baldwin, mm-hmm. and uh, Jack Baldwin showed it to him. And Baldwin said, "Well, crikey," said, "if this works, it's um, it's, it's rather incredible." Mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, he's going to give aircraft a thrust of about a thousand pounds, which doesn't sound very much to you when you're flying 777s with 95 or 114,000 pounds of thrust, but in in those days there's a lot of thrust, because when the Spitfire first flew in 1936 with the Merlin engine, Mm -hmm. the propeller on that Spitfire gave it a thrust of about 860 pounds. So... What Frank Whittle is suggesting in 1929 is a very as an engine which would weigh half what the mm-hmm. Merlin was going to weigh when the Merlin came online, but this is 1929 before Merlin, yeah. and um, he his his engine was going to weigh less than a thousand pounds, but have a thrust of about a thousand pounds, so the thrust to weight ratio was good, mm-hmm. and um, it was going to have a compression ratio into the combustion chambers of four to one from two single stage of single sided centrifugal yeah. compressors. 
and this would burn 168 imperial gallons of fuel an hour and have a huge expansion through the turbine. And uh, the turbine would absorb some horsepower to drive the compressors. And then the rest of the energy would go down a jet pipe as jet thrust. Yeah. Now, did he get any help? His commanding officer said, go and see the air ministry. So he went to see the air ministry. Um, what's his name? Baldwin made an, uh, an appointment for him and he went to the air ministry. And they said, oh, uh, um, he said, this, this is uh, Tweedy was the man who we met him at the door. Um, uh, Mr. Tweedy said, well, this is a gas turbine. He said, we don't know anything about gas turbines here in the air ministry, in the engine division. <laughs> We're all piston engine people, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> so Frank Whittle said, yes. Well, uh, isn't there anybody you know, you know who could? They said, yes, we've got a man at the Royal Aircraft Establishment. We've got a... Um, Dr. Arnold Griffith. A.A. Oh, Griffith. A.A. Griffith. He Dr. became quite a thorn in your father's oh, side, I think, didn't did he? Did he ever? <laughs> Alan Arnold Griffith. Now, Griffith was, without any shadow of doubt, a very clever man. He'd already done some very good work um, with st structural tensile strength of metal and mm -hmm. cracks in, in metal and how you detect it and so on and so forth. He, he was sometimes known, I think, as Bubbles or something like that <laughs> because of something he'd invented. So anyway, right. he, was, <laughs> he was very much an individual and any, uh, a lone worker as well. Mm. And, and, and Frank Whittle went to see him. And uh, now, now, I should explain, I don't know if I'm going to be boring. Well, you can always cut it out. But <laughs> um, Griffith had quite very wisely and sensibly in 1926 had written a report to the air, for the air ministry, recommending that they should start to research the gas turbine mm -hmm. for aeronautical applications because Arnold Griffith had discovered certain aerodynamic characteristics of the aeroplane propeller that he thought could be applied mm. to the axial compressor blades, mm. making an axial compressor that much more efficient because one of the big problems was always that the, the axial compressor, the, the gas turbine was always going to be too big, too heavy and too fuel greedy for aeronautical application. This had already been decided <clears throat> several years before. Griffith is now countering that and saying, in his report in 1926, saying, I think we should start looking into the gas turbine seriously. Because if we apply up-to-date aerodynamic principles to the blades of the axial compressor we should be able to build one with a level of efficiency and yet be compact enough for an aero gas turbine for an engine mm -hmm. that could fit into an aeroplane or under the wing of or whatever mm -hmm. so the air ministry thought his report was very good and they they decided to fund him in his researches so he began work in 1927 a lot of people say 26, but I don't think he... I think it's right to say he started in 1927. And he started to work on the aerodynamics of... the dynamics of the axial compressor. And he wasn't really getting very far. By 1930... He'd had some success, but not enough. And in 1930, the Air pulled the rug from under his feet. So mm -hmm. shortly after the idea of the gas turbine jet engine... Griffith, in fact, stopped work on the axial. But going back a year to 1929, Frank Whittle walks into his office. Now, when Griffith saw Frank Whittle and saw the turbojet idea, we don't know what went on in his mind. But it seems to me pretty obvious that he was astonished at the simplicity mm. of the turbojet. And I think it may have upset him a bit because he hadn't thought of that. Mm -hmm. He had already on paper designed an incredibly complicated turboprop. Yes, because yeah. his engine would have still had a propeller yes. on it. That's what was going to actually drive the aircraft yes. forward. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, but it was so complicated. It had 14 stages of axial compressor, 14 stages of turbine, each set counter-rotating well, and reverse flow in combustion. So very heavy, we're talking about. It wouldn't have been very heavy, no. No, no. no. It, was, it was just very, oh, very complicated. Right. Okay so complicated it would never, ever work. Yes. Uh, it, and yeah. Griffith kept on fiddling around with his idea until the 40s, uh, 1940s, but uh, it was doomed. Mm. It was doomed technology. But he didn't know that at the time when mm. Frank Whittle walked into his office. 
Mm-hmm. But he looks at Frank Whittle's um, design for a turbojet and he poo-pooed the whole idea. Mm-hmm. He told the air ministry, he said, forget it. It doesn't warrant, it, has, it hasn't got the merit to warrant any further research. He said, um, the, he's too optimistic about his compression ratio from his compressor. He said there was no material could withstand the inlet temperature at the turbine because Frank Whittle had predicted an inlet temperature of 800 Kelvin, and uh, which is about 520 something mm-hmm. centigrade. Mm-hmm. And he Griffith said that there's no material could withstand it. Griffith was quite wrong because mm-hmm. there was a, an alloy out at the time called KE965, <laughs> which would have withstood mm-hmm. the temperature. And anyway, turbine cooling was an option. Yeah. So uh, Griffiths was really very naughty mm. in telling the poor old air ministry people didn't know any better. Mm. And Griffith tells them that the idea has no merit. So obviously they turn, they send all the paperwork to Frank Whittle with a letter, which with a bit of uh, a rather naughty letter because it said they'd been experimenting with jet propulsion already and given up on it, or worse to that effect, yeah. which was completely untrue, palpably untrue, as, as Bill Gunston used to say. <laughs> uh, remember Bill Gunston yes. was a wonderful yes. journalist? Yeah. Anyway, so, so the, the whole idea was rejected. Now, when you're rejected by the air ministry like that and you are a serving officer in the RAF, you just get on with your career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't stuff around. Yeah. And Frank Whittle was very busy. Uh, this is 1929. He, was, he began to teach flying at number two FTS, which happens to be the same FTS that I went to when I was in the <laughs> RAF, but only a number. Yeah. And uh, he so he taught ab initio pilots on, on uh, to 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 fly, and um, then he was he also did uh, crazy flying, as they called it, aerobatic mm. flying yeah. for the in front of the public at RAF Hendon and stuff mm-hmm. like that because he was quite good at aerobatics and, and he broke a couple of aeroplanes. <laughs> yes, I've read this. <laughs> <laughs> Which was unfortunate. Is this flight... a quote from the boss that said you might as well just burn them all off? Yes, yes that's right. right. <laughs> his, flight, his flight commander said, why don't you put all these aeropla- my aeroplanes in the middle of the airfield and set fire to them? It would be quicker that way. <laughs> anyway, so he gets through all that and uh, he becomes a test pilot. Well, whilst he's... So, so therefore, from... October 1929, when he presents his idea of the turbojet, now on for a few years, he's just very busy with his mm-hmm. career. He was also coming up with all sorts of other ideas, not just the turbojet. He, he, whenever he, wherever he was and whatever he was doing, he was one of these annoying people who can always think of a better way of doing mm-hmm. it. <laughs> I mean, he once saw me out in the garden. I was trying to move a heavy piece of something or other. It's right around the corner there. It's a, it's a leather, a lead um, thing on a plinth. Yes. And I was trying to move it from one place to the other. He said, shouted out, he was sitting in a deck chair and he shouted, why don't you just roll it? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> anyway, so that's the way he is or yeah. was. And um, so, so the RAF, because what I'm trying to say here is that he became a marked man in the RAF. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They began to realise that this bloke could think outside the box, yeah. which is all very well. But, you know, if you're trying to run a service, you're a senior officer trying to run a service and you've got personnel coming up with bright, bright spark ideas. That's great, of course, and you don't want to discourage them. But on the other hand, well, what do you do with them? Mm-hmm. You know, where do you slot them in to, mm-hmm. to, so that they can be useful? Because the RAF don't have a slot no. for inventive people. No. It just doesn't exist. No. <laughs> so, anyway, Frank Whittle was very happy because well, he did his test pilot mm-hmm. flying and he did quite a few dangerous things, as you may or may not know. Yeah. And um, Such as? Well, he had, one of his jobs was, was the development of a catapult. They had a, a cordite-powered catapult uh, which was being developed. So he was the test pilot testing the aeroplanes being... Sh- they were float planes being shoved oh, off on nice. a catapult off the side of HMS Ark Royal, for oh, example. Yeah. And then you go, poof, and the thing would go out over the sea. So he was poof. sitting on top of a pile of cordite, basically, at some point. Well, I don't think that was too much of a problem. The cordite was quite a long way oh, down okay. below. Right? <laughs> to, to move the, the levers... So the cordite went that way and the levers went that way. <laughs> so, 
and it flung the float plane off the deck and mm. across over the sea with his engine going full chat yeah. and uh, he would get just above stall speed and accelerate wow. above the sea. So, so he was doing similar stuff to Eric Winkle Brown. Or was it with sort of, Winkle no, Brown later? Eric, Eric didn't do cat- he did catapult launches, Eric, I, yeah. I suppose. Yes, of course he did deck launches mm, yeah. with steam catapults yeah, and of course yeah. he did more deck landings than yeah. anybody else in the world I think, yeah, 2400 yeah. or something but um, Eric didn't do catapult development per se okay. I don't think, no, no. I may be wrong I knew Eric very well and we got on very Oh, we had a lot well, of jolly conversation. Yeah. Stayed sure. here. Yeah. Oh, how super! Yes, yes. God, I'd love to. His met first wife that. was charming. Oh. Did Did your father have any um, input into the the design of these these things he was testing? Or Actually, was... no, he right. didn't. No, mm-hmm. he tried to think of improvements for for, for float planes. For example, yeah. they were armed float planes. Yeah. He he designed a field of fire which was accepted by the RAF yeah. for the float planes, and he was trying to improve the way they were recovering the aircraft to put them back onto the catapult mm-hmm. from the sea. Because right. he'd taxi back to the Art Royal, yeah. and then they'd yeah. grab the aeroplane, usually bend it, yeah. <laughs> and stick it on the, the catapult. <laughs> on the catapult and set it off again, yeah. But one day, he, was, he, he, did a, he did a launch, and I got a movie of this, which I show and I do my lectures. Oh, with. lovely. Uh, he, you see it gets airborne, somebody falls out of the rear cockpit onto the fuselage because his, 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 the senior officer was a flight lieutenant, Kirk, and Kirk said to him, we just landed back onto the sea from a launch, mm. and he taxied back to HMS Harper Oil, and pulled the aeroplane up out of the water, stuck it on top of the, te- the um, catapult again for another launch, you see. And Frank Whittle is hanging about, waiting to, with his, you know, his kit on, goggles and helmet and all, and then Flight Lieutenant Kirk came up, also in flying kit. He said, I'm coming on this next launch. And Frank Whittle says, you can't. He said, I haven't got a seat in the back cockpit. <laughs> oh, it's all right, he said. We'll get the sandbag. They had sandbags in there for mm-hmm. ballast, for the centre of gravity. And he said, we'll get the sandbags out and uh, put a bit of plywood or something and I'll sit on that. <laughs> and Frank Whittle said, well, you, you really shouldn't because... the." You know, I'm not supposed to have anybody in the back back of the aeroplane unless they're in a proper seat and strapped in. Mm. Oh, it'll be all right, says Kirk. Well, (laughs) Frank Whittle should have said sorry, but no. Mm. But he didn't like to do that because Kirk was the senior officer Mm. and he thought Kirk would think he was being a bit silly and maybe write a a negative report. (laughs) So he unwisely said, "Okay." Now, Kirk was wearing gauntlets mm-hmm. um, and his flying kit. And before he climbed into the cockpit, where they'd taken the sandbags out and they'd put a piece of plywood there for him to sit on. And it, but before he got into the aeroplane, he fiddled with the me- mechanism of the, of the um, catapult. I don't know what he was doing, but he, he touched the, the lubricant, which was glycerine lubricant. Mm-hmm. And he got it contaminated on his gloves, you see. And then he climbs into the back seat of the aeroplane and held on to the sides of the cockpit with his, <laughs> with his gloved hands, you see. And then, of course, they get the thumbs up. The engine's going full chat. Frank Whittle's looking forwards. He's mm-hmm. not looking at Kirk, who's sitting behind him in mm-hmm. the rear cockpit. Bang! Off with the stick. <laughs> the the um, catapult mechanism went boom, you see. Launched the aeroplane out over the sea. <laughs> Kirk shot up into the air, <laughs> lost his grip, up into the air, and fell on the rear fuselage. Now, of course, as soon as he hit the f- rear fuselage, he would have gone straight into the sea, mm. but the vertical fin stopped his, arrested his progress mm. backwards. He caught up with the tail and got stuck on the tail there. Oh. The aeroplane... Facing course, which way? Well, uh, well, he's facing backwards. Yeah. Is it all agony? Because you can see in the film <laughs> he, 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 where he lands on the back, and he's actually... Goodness. Clinging on and facing rearwards. The aeroplane's going the other way. <laughs> anyway, because the centre of gravity is now somewhere where it certainly should not be. And, and the aeroplane went into a very high nose-up attitude. Frank Whittle shoves the stick forward to get the ele- elevator at full up and uh, to get the tail... Mm, okay. Sorry, full down, mm, so to get the tail up, you see. And um, so he's got the stick fully forward and his left hand on the throttle at full throttle. And the aeroplane sort of hovered over the sea just above stall speed and just flew at about 60 feet above the waves and flew along. And he thought, oh, 
I must have got a broken elevator or something <laughs> like that, you see. So he had a glance over his left shoulder to see if, what, if he could see anything, by which time Kirk had clambered into a sort of seat, sitting position yes. on the left-hand horizontal uh, empennage. Oh, oh, my goodness. And he had his right elbow around the fin... His right elbow, so the, so the fin was holding him up, and he had his left hand on the leading edge, and uh, and was leading against one of the the wires, you know. The, yeah. And anyway, um, Frank Whittle didn't sit. He just glanced that there was somebody there, and he without realizing who it was, and he thought he'd picked a sailor up <laughs> from the catapult, you see. So uh, he he went along for a bit, and then he sees a dirty great passenger liner. Yeah. on a const line of constant bearing from mm. left to right coming across his path. And he's sitting there in this aeroplane puttying along at about, I don't know, 60 knots or something. <laughs> and um, he's got this huge ship, the superstructure of which is higher yeah. than he is. And he's going to bump into it unless he's careful. So this is a bit of a problem. So at that moment, he took another more careful look to see what the <laughs> hell was going on on the back. And the sailor might have fallen off by then. But he looks behind him. No, it's not the sailor. It's Flight Lieutenant Kirk. <laughs> now, Kirk saw him looking at him. Yes. And so he thought he would say, I'm OK. <laughs> see, you wouldn't believe this, would you? He's sitting on the tail of the aeroplane, flying over the sea, and he's going to say, I'm OK. So he let go of the empennage with his left hand to put his thumb up, you see, as the <laughs> universal sign of all is well. Yes. And he opened his silly mouth um, to say, I'm no. OK, and the prop wash filled his face, and he pulled the most extraordinary face, you see. <laughs> Father's looking at him, his face is all over the place, and his hand's waving him around <laughs> in the slipstream, and he thought, poor fellow is in agony. Mm. He, he must have sat on something, and he got something stuck up his bottom. <laughs> So, he, anyway, he realises it's Flight Lieutenant Kirk. Now he has to concentrate on how to miss the boat. Yeah. The boat is German, by the way. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. yes, there's a Capitan on the... This is straight out of those deck. magnificent it's men in their flying machines. Watching those stupid British <laughs> through his binoculars. Is he wondering what on earth they're doing with somebody sitting on the back of an aeroplane. And anyway, he, he apparently, he signalled a left turn, which with ship, shipping terms is toot toot on mm. the tooter. Mm -hmm. And then he left, put the helm over and they started a left up. But there not much sea room there because yeah. he was in the Solent. Mm. And um, <laughs> anyway, um, my father found that if he took a little bit of power off, the aeroplane just simply descended mm. back down to the sea. Uh, and he, he couldn't turn left or right, apparently. Mm. I don't know quite why. Something to do with the rudder. Some, being some bloke holding on to the rudder. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, he wasn't holding on to the rudder, but he was yeah. masking the rudder. Yes, yeah. And so uh, that didn't yeah. work. And, uh, and, and he, found, he, he found he couldn't. Anyway, he was flying at absolute minimum airspeed, mm. so there wasn't really much yeah. room for manoeuvring or anything. But he just took a bit of power off, and the aeroplane sort of went down like a lift. Going, still going forward at about, yeah. well, I don't know, 60 knots or something like that. And, and then he touched down on the sea with his floats and then taxied out of the way of the ship <laughs> and, and taxied back to HMS Aurora. Oh, and in the meantime, of course, Kirk climbs along the fuselage, gets into the rear cockpit, no. taps him on the shoulder and shouts, I'm OK! <laughs> <laughs> Frank Whittle is thinking, you... <laughs> yes, I'm sure he is. But really? We've, we've got a bleeper machine. We can stick that in. Uh, that is a suit. I mean, these stories only come about from that sort of era, mm, don't they? Yeah. Uh, they yeah. will never, ever be repeated. Yeah. But uh, that's wonderful, Ian. But the way we got into that was the RF wondering yeah. what they could could do with with your father and in fact they they were good to him weren't they because they oh yeah they allowed him to carry on his studies at cambridge i think i'm right in saying oh the more during than that. His no more than that they they after he finished his test pilot duties they were scratching their heads wondering what the hell to do with him mm -hmm. so they thought right we'll send him to the officer's engineering course at ref henlow uh, yeah so they sent him there, and as I, I, as a non-flying job, was that I tell you? Was well, it, that's just an engineering course. Yeah, I thought the course. Oh, okay. Right, so yeah. he wasn't. He would. He would have to fly every now and yeah. then to keep his hand in. Of yeah. And I think it was a two-year course, mm -hmm. but I, that I'm not absolutely sure about. Yeah. But, and I believe he completed the course in eighteen months, and he came out with an aggregate of ninety-eight percent. Sure. So he did awfully well. Mm. I think <laughs> the only exam he didn't get about ninety-eight percent in was was 
was um, was drawing, mechanical drawing. Right. But for some reason, he, didn't, he only got 90 or 95 percent. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But he did very well. Now, the point is that because he did very well at that, and because of all his other ideas, mm. because he was an ideas person, um, the RAF didn't know quite what to do with him, where to slot him in. So he asked them, he said, look, would you send me to Cambridge University as a mature student to study mechanical sciences? And they said, oh, oh, all right. <laughs> they were quite pleased. Oh, yes, that's what we'll do. We'll yeah. send him. That'll keep him busy for a bit. So they, he said he could do the three-year course in two years instead mm -hmm. of three, because he'd done the course at Henlow, mm -hmm. so he figured he could skip the first year of mm -hmm. the three-year tripos yeah. and do the second year and the third year and come out with a good degree which which he did he mm -hmm. came out with first class honors but this is most important for your people who are listening to this when he was at, nothing is happening with the turbojet mm -hmm. nothing whatsoever in the uk and nothing would have happened either and we're sorry we're just for the timeline here we're talking about late 1920s are we are oh, we're talking now sorry we're up to he was went into cambridge in 1934 34 mm -hmm. okay right mm -hmm. no, i'm sorry i'm i'm probably no it's just just some yeah so he gets the idea in 1929, yeah. as he does his duties as a instructor, test yeah. pilot. Then he goes to Henlow and does his officer's engineering course. Now he goes to Cambridge in 1934. Right. His wife, Dorothy, is pregnant with me, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I'm born in November 34. But right. he enters Cambridge as a, as a mature student in the summer of 1934, and is in rented accommodation in Trumpington. Um, and I am born, mm -hmm. November 1934. And then a letter came in the post in May 1935 from a friend of his. He was busy at the time with his May exams. As right now, they're all busy up yeah. there in <laughs> Cambridge and everywhere else. Yes. My grandson's up there at Cambridge <laughs> doing aeronautical sciences. Is he? And yeah, he's doing just much similar to another Whittle. <laughs> well, his surname is Asaley because yeah. my, our daughter married right. a, a chap called Asaley. So he's Max Asaley. Anyway, well, he's up there right now doing his exams and um, hoping to go along to the Whittle laboratory at some time. Oh, was wonderful. Yeah. There. Anyway. Don't let me change the yeah. subject. Yeah. Yeah. Where was I? <laughs> so he's, he's got a letter from... Um, a oh, chump. yes, he gets a letter. A letter came in the post from a chap called Rolf Williams, who was a good old pal of his. They'd shared a room in, um, uh, in Cranwell. They'd been cadets together at Cranwell. And Rolf Williams had become a, a, a pilot in the RAF, and he'd been a float plane pilot as well. And they'd kept in close contact with each other. And Rolf Williams always used to say, oh, Whittle, he's a brainy fellow, he's amazing, he thinks up all sorts of new things. Mm. You know, he was dead keen on Frank Whittle, you see, Rolf Williams was. And he was a hell of a nice guy. I mean, I got to know him, and I got to know him, he became my Uncle Willie. Oh, <laughs> lovely. But um, anyway, he, uh, Rolf wrote this letter saying, look, if you haven't got anybody else interested in your turbojet, I would like to take it on because he'd left the RAF and he's now an entrepreneur and mm -hmm. he's in partnership with a chap called Collingwood Tinling, mm -hmm. Teddy Tinling's brother, mm -hmm. not like Teddy Tinling, <laughs> um, not the same sort of chap. He was a, also an ex-RAF pilot, right. tall, good looking, been mm -hmm. in a terrible crash and broken almost every bone in his body. Mm -hmm been put back together again and now he's entrepreneuring with Rolf Williams, mm -hmm. two really nice guys and Rolf gets this idea to contact his friend Frank Whittle to ask him if anybody's taking any interest because if they aren't he would like to raise the capital because yeah. you always have to raise mm -hmm. capital if you mm -hmm. want to do something. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, Frank Whittle says what well, words to the effect Oops, he said, sorry, I've let the patent expire because mm -hmm. his patent expired in January 1934. And, uh, so he had to have paid money to keep it, keep it going? Yes, right? they'd written to him in, in November 1933 and yeah. said, would you like to renew, uh, um, extend your patent mm -hmm. and you must pay so much money mm -hmm. to do so? It wasn't a lot of money, but yeah. he, 
he didn't have any money at the time because of had my brother had been born in 1931 and was a, a sickly child and had to have a lot of medical attention and mother had had terrible trouble having my brother when she had him as a baby and she her life was really at risk she'd been told not to have any more children and then i came along so it was a bit of a worry but father because he had to pay all of he had, didn't get a marriage, marriage allowance because he'd married too young so being very 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 short of cash he just decided he couldn't afford to and he didn't want to ask his father-in-law Edgar Lee my mm. my maternal grandfather for money Edgar Lee my grandfather had in fact been very helpful before mm-hmm. but he didn't want to ask for any money so um he let the patent expire so he tells Rolf Williams I'm sorry I've allowed the patent to expire but I'll try and collaborate with you to the best of my abilities but he said I'm subject entirely to my duties in the Royal Air Force mm-hmm. so only can I help if the Royal Air Force will let me is basically what he's saying So Rolf Williams contacted a chap called Bramson and said look would Bramson write a report on the turbojet which could be put forward to raise funds from a merchant bank so Bramson wrote a report which was totally different to what AA Griffith had mm-hmm. written he said this is such a good idea Um, and he showed the reasons mm-hmm. mathematically yeah. why it's such a good idea why it's efficient why it would have this thrust blah 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 and he said worse the effect this really must be done and so the merchant bank who is OT Falcon Co uh, Oswald Falk's bank mm-hmm. and I'm very pleased to know that I know John Falk and these and John's brother the grandsons of uh, Oswald Falk uh, their pals of mine yeah. Uh, which is rather nice. Yeah. Anyway, Oswald Falk uh, decided to to fund the initial mm-hmm. development of the turbojet. So they then found a contractor called British Thompson Houston in rugby mm-hmm. to do who agreed that they would collaborate and help with uh, being paid of course to yes. do so um that they would build the engine for them. Mm-hmm. So all this is happening while Frank Whittle is as at Cambridge in his second year of his three-year course if you see what I mean. Yes. So he's quite busy. <laughs> <laughs> and of course he's got to start producing drawings mm. for for the construction of this engine that he and he changed his engine a bit instead of having two stages a single-sided centrifugal he decided it'd be better much better to have a single-stage centrifugal but mm-hmm. double-sided. Right, yeah. Uh, so they keep the shaft nice and short mm-hmm. because he knew to keep the 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 um circumfer- sorry the radius of the compressor as as low as possible yeah. it would have to have a very high speed of rotation mm-hmm. up to a point where the tips would be just about subsonic mm. just subsonic and then so it was going to revolve at about 17000 plus rpm mm-hmm. which is fast yeah and then uh, the turbine at a certain diameter and um and the distance between the, the turbine and the compressor would be so much and so on because if they had the turbine and compressor too cl- too far apart um you get whirl in the shaft mm-hmm. so he wanted to keep the shaft very short so they get away with just having two bearings so all this he's doing in his second year at Cambridge and then he comes out as i say with first class honors the royal air force were very good about him because they said okay they said we'll give you a year of we'll call it postgraduate studies <laughs> he had to say things yes, like that because yeah. the civilians in the air ministry were looking over their yeah. shoulders saying what 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 are <laughs> you doing with this fellow yeah. you <laughs> paid all this money on training him and mm-hmm. educating him and now you're going to let him work on his jet engine that civilian business that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. you shouldn't be having a, an RAF officer working on this stuff but so they said postgraduate studies so the air ministry sat back and accepted that mm-hmm. that was okay but of course that was over in a year yeah now he ran his engine by the by you know by well, Yep. Sorry, in the interim he'd set up the company Powerjets. Powerjets. Which, which yes. is quite something to set up a company while well, he was still being employed by the RAF. No, Rolf Williams did all that. Okay. Rolf and, right. and, and Collingwood Tinling. Yeah. Um they they did all the sort of admin stuff. Yeah. 
he didn't have to worry his head on that. He was entirely involved with the drawings for the okay. engine and so on and so forth, and negotiating with British Thompson Houston. And so they started to build the engine in early 1936 when Power Jets was formed, and uh, it, the engine started to form. It took a year before the engine was in a form that could be started. Right, yeah. It, it didn't look like a real jet engine because the combustion chamber was very peculiar. It was big, big fat combust, just a single chamber mm -hmm. combustion around the the rotor, around the shaft. The shaft yeah. And um, anyway, they started it up <laughs> on the twelfth of April, nineteen thirty-seven. Now, yes, exactly, almost to the day, eighty-five years ago. So yes. we've got our we've anniversary. Got anniversary. Yeah, yeah, you have. Yeah, <laughs> I've never thought of that. That's quite right. Well, we've just missed the, the first anniversary, the anniversary of the first jet flight with the yeah. E-2829 by yeah, year. But I did find this... Yeah, thank you for mentioning that date. 85 years ago, almost to the day that we're recording this right. interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, what, what more can I tell you? Do you want to hear about well, the first start-up? Because it's uh, it was pretty comical. terrifying, wasn't it? It was very comical, really, <laughs> in retrospect, but terrifying and horrible for him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because what they did was they had this... Um, they were up on, I think it was the first... On a sort of upper floor, as it were, in British Thompson Houston's factory, and they had the jet pipe thing sticking out through a hole in the wall or a window or something. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, they, what they had to do is start the engine. They used a diesel engine. They didn't need it. They all they needed was an electrical mm -hmm. starter motor or something. But they used an actual diesel engine to to get the shaft rotating, mm -hmm. and. Um, they they started that. He Frank Whittle has the that, the control for the fuel inje injection. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't injection. I think it, well, it was then. Yes, it was it was being atomized the fuel, mm -hmm. and he had he had control of the fuel inlet valve, and um, somebody else was doing the starter motor. So he was signalling to them to put the RPM up. He could see the RPM on on a gauge, and they got up to about sixteen hundred RPM or something like that. And then he, they put the ignition on, and woof, you know, the thing lit up. <laughs> so he and he's got the the fuel valve probably about half open or something like that, and it and it starts to accelerate. You mm -hmm. see, so it makes a hell of a row yeah. yes. from a sort of it woof and then a, a growl to a yeah. scream. Yes, and the thing went up to eight thousand RPM <laughs> with him with the fuel control valve completely closed. Because as soon as it started to run away like that, yeah, yeah, he yeah, closed yeah, the yeah. fuel valve completely. But it didn't make any difference. It continued to accelerate, <laughs> and he, he thought he thought he must have invented perpetual motion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it got up to eight thousand RPM, making a dreadful screaming noise. Yeah. And all the mechanics who were there with him, they all disappeared. <laughs> yes. Naturally and very sensibly, <laughs> yeah. they all took cover, yes. left him there hanging on to the fuel yes. control valve. And he sort of looked around, there was nobody there, because the thing then started to wind down, yeah, yeah. and it sort of went down to a sort of grumbling groan, and it stopped. Mm -hmm. They recreated that, didn't they, in a film, with your father in it? They did, but of course it was silly, because yes, they, they yes. make it look as if it, it looks a little blew comical. up, but it yeah. didn't blow yeah. up yeah. at all. It, yeah. it, just, it was terrifying, yeah. but it did not blow up, and they, they did another start the next day, and yeah. the same thing happened. What had happened was... That when they test when they were testing the fuel uh, electrical fuel pump, some fuel was uh, bypassing somehow and was collecting in the bottom of this funny combustion chamber. Mm. So once he started the engine, it was picking up that fuel, yeah. and so it was running on that. In fact, mm. so he had fuel had no control over that at all. No, right? not yeah. at all. And it could have been they couldn't see that. They yeah. couldn't see inside the combustion chamber, yeah. and so <laughs> and apparently, it was rather funny with father. I, I, of course, obviously don't remember because I was terribly young at the time. I must have been up in bed in a cot. In, 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 we were staying in a hotel at the time, in Rugby. Mm -hmm. Crescent Hotel, I think it was called. And, uh, but Mother and he were going to have supper together on the, um, uh, that evening. And, and Father started to laugh because he started <laughs> to think about those mechanics who fled, <laughs> you see. And it suddenly occurred to him how funny it was. Yeah. He started to laugh. And he couldn't stop laughing. And his eyes were streaming with tears. And mother is saying, well, what's so funny? And eventually he had to get out of the dining room yeah. in the hotel because, you know, it was embarrassing. 
<laughs> need to go out and try and get his act together up in the room or something. Well, this is a combination <laughs> of stress, relief, yes, overtiredness, overwork. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, so, yeah. but they were—they proved it worked. Yeah, but just the control was an issue. Basically. It was just a, a fuel yeah. problem. Yeah. Um, that's mm. all it was. So they ran it again the next day, yeah. and it did a similar so, thing. No, it's the same thing. <laughs> exactly yeah. the same thing. But uh, they. I don't know, they caught it earlier, and nobody mm. ran away. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they don't think they did. And, um, and then they, they found out what was the matter. So, at last, with the jet engine has made its first ever run in, in 1937, and at last people sort of sit up and begin to take notice. And there's another funny story, I think, which I'd love to hear from you, Ian. Before a jet engine had even been mounted into an aircraft, didn't Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding come down to see your father and see the engine, which is outside, and they started it up. Yes. And um, it didn't go terribly well from Dowding's point of view. No, no, not terribly. You know, Stuffy Dowding was quite a fierce sort of fellow. (laughs) Yes. My father was a little bit frightened of him because he was very, very senior. And you're jumping a hell of a long time. Well, I know. I've gone... Uh, This is 1940, I think. I think, yes. I think they got the engine installed in a meteor or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, Dowding... Pointed in the noise, very noisy when the jet engines go. I don't think it was in an aeroplane, sorry. No, it, it wasn't. It was a test, no. that's right. You're yeah. quite right. It was a test of the WU. Yeah. And Dowding pointed towards the rear of the engine, and my father misunderstood what he was, what he wanted to do, you see, because of all the noise. They couldn't speak yeah. to each other. Yeah. And he nodded. So Dowding then walked into the, into the jet stream from the back of the engine. <laughs> And it nearly blew him off his feet. Well, it he, did, apparently. Uh, well, no, he, 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 held, he, he didn't fall over. Ripped his he coat. he staggered about, his <laughs> coat ripped open and his hat flew off. So he lost all his dignity. <laughs> <laughs> and Father thought he'd be so cross <clears throat> that he would get into trouble, but Dowding was quite sensible and he got over it. <laughs> because no-one was used to seeing an engine that didn't have a propeller. That's right. And yeah. you can't see the jet flow out no, of the no. back. No. See, it was just hot air. No, I have jumped ahead a little bit, but I mean, in the interest of moving things on just, just a tad, I mean, there were obviously many, many more. Are you trying to suggest I got Not in the slightest. No, 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 no. no, we're loving this. But <laughs> there were an awful lot of different stages, and, you know, British Thompson Houston were really used to making huge, colossal steam turbines. Yes. They weren't really the right firm for more delicate instrumentation like right. you need it's an aircraft. A between a grandfather clock and a Swiss watch. Yeah, yeah lovely, yes. lovely. Mm. Then he was introduced to Rover. That was a bad relationship. Oh, that was awful. Mm-hmm. Most unfortunate. Mm. Unfortunately, uh, Nancy Tinling, Col Tinling's wife, was friendly with the Wilkes brothers who ran Rover. Mm-hmm. And she, or through the Wilkes brothers... Well, they'd got on to her and said, well, actually, we would rather like to build your jet engine. And um, this got back to the air ministry and they thought, "Mm, you know, well, why not Rovers? So they went to Rovers and said, well, would you take the job on? They said, oh, yes, please, because Rovers knew the patent had had expired. Mm. They knew this technology was up for grabs Mm. and they took it on with evil intent. Now, the Wilkes brothers were not evil people, mm-hmm. but they were businessmen yeah. and they were out they to sold, make money for the company yeah. and make money for the shareholders. Don't stuff around when you're trying to run a company. Mm. You've got to make money. Mm. So they saw a window of opportunity mm. and I'm afraid they took it. It was horrible mm. for power jets, mm. horrible for Frank Whittle, but they did. They got hold of the technology and they started to tinker with it to try and turn the engine into a Rover product. They changed the fuel pump, the bearings, and they were changing the combustion system between 1940 and the end of 1942. Those two or three years, they were tinkering with the engine. Frank Whittle, who didn't know what was going on at first, and Power Jets didn't realise what was happening, couldn't understand why things were taking so long, why they weren't producing the W2 mm. engine to be put into this fighter jet which was being built by Gloucesters. Mm. So... Delay after delay, fiddle-faddle, and eventually he discovered that they were making all these changes to the engine so that it would be a Rover product, and they would get all the credit and money for any sales, and they didn't seem to think that they would be using it for the wartime effort. My father was going completely spare, because Mm -hmm. ever since war broke out in 1939, he was feeling very guilty, because he was a pilot, 
He was a squadron leader by then, and he thought that he would be um, in active yeah. service or producing a war machine mm. with his jet engine. Yeah. He elected... That was, that was two years wasted, basically. Pardon? With the, with the, the rover debacle, if you like, wasted two years. It did. It waste, yeah. wasted yeah. two years mm. during the war mm. when the outcome of the war was not no. certain at all. We didn't really know that we, we, that we were on a winning side until after the Americans had come in. Yeah. And 1943, I suppose, is about when we knew. But, I mean, the, if you think that he'd come up with the idea in the 1920s and we got to 1937 before a jet engine actually ran mm. and then 1941, I think, was the first flight of the Gloucester E-28 39, which most people would have known as the Gloucester Whittle. I think it was also called the Gloucester Pioneer. Yeah. But Van Ohein actually suggests that had your father had the same sort of backing from the authorities that he had from the German authorities, going back to the early 1930s, that he could have developed a jet fighter before the start of the Second World War that would have been enough, actually, to convince Hitler not to start a war against a country yes. that was armed with, with jet fighters. Do, is a, that a little extreme, a little far-fetched, do you think? Not really, because if you think about it, how long when it started in 1936, it took a year to get an engine going on a shoestring. Shoestring, mind you. Yeah. But it was, and they, but they got the engine going in, in April thirty-seven. Then... There was the stuff up with um, uh, rovers, which delayed everything by a good two years. But you take away that, we could have had an operation, we would have been flying a jet aeroplane, let's say, um, three years after the inception of development. We should have been able to have a a jet aircraft flying three or four years, and say another three years for developing an operational fighter. Mm. Look at seven years. Well, if the engine had started uh, work, say, in 1930, give a few months, you know, for people to have a little think about it. Uh, So by 1937, in theory, it's conjecture, but we should have had uh, some kind of operational jet-powered airplanes. By 1939, without any shadow of doubt, we could have had operational jet mm-hmm. fighters and operationally powered mm-hmm. uh, turbojet powered bombers as well. Yeah, because by that stage, the the Heinkel had become the first jet aircraft to fly, hadn't it? In in nineteen thirty nine, but again, the engine just wasn't up to spec. The the, the German engines were never as good well, as as your father's engine. You're talking about. Well, I think any of them weren't they? Well, because none of, of what you described. Good, but you know what you haven't. I don't think either of you realised that in nineteen thirty six. Herbert Wagner was, had put up a design for a turbojet engine mm. in Germany in secret, unbeknownst to Heinkel and von Ohein and mm-hmm. co. He was busy, and his turbojet engine had a lot of promise, mm-hmm. but it had an axial flow compressor. Yeah. Mm. And so they ran into all the problems with the axial flow compressor. Yeah. Otherwise, it was very good. Yeah. And his axial flow compressor had a reaction factor of 0.5, which is a lot better than the Junkers Yumo compressor, which had a reaction factor of one. Uh-huh. And uh, so, but unfortunately, the, the the Wagner engine, well, it was a mess up because in 1939, the, the Air Minister, German Air Ministry uh, insisted on everything being done by engine manufacturers. So the Junkers airframe people where Wagner was working couldn't continue with mm-hmm. the jet engine. So it had... They transferred their turbojet projects to the engine division, mm. and Anselm Franz was put in charge of the development of the Junkers turbojet, and he selected to go. Decided well, the air ministry made him go with the axial compressor. Mm. Luckily for us, mm-hmm. and uh, Herbert Wagner's design transferred to Heinkel. Heinkel purchased an aero engine company so that he could continue. And he, he had the Bonohein uh, project and he had the Herb, what was effectively the Herbert Wagner mm-hmm. project undergoing from 1939 at the Heinkel Aero Engine Company, where, where he bought the, the I've forgotten, oh, mm. Firth or 
I forget what the name of the um, company was, right, where I'm sitting here now. But anyway, um, everybody talks about von Ohain, but really Herbert Wagner had a far more promising turbojet project. Mm -hmm. The von Ohain's idea was 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 great. It was mm -hmm. it was good for us as an APU, as an auxiliary yeah. power unit, or something like that, or or power generator. And it was very cleverly. It was so simple, yeah. his idea that it had much going for it, but not for aero propulsion. No. It was dead-end technology when, it, mm -hmm. when you come to aircraft propulsion. When the engine was, it flew in 1939, but it only flew in 1939 because Heinkel was desperate to get the Reichluftfahrtministerium, the RLM or whatever you call it, the Air Ministry, to take an interest. Yeah. He felt he had to put this almost useless engine <laughs> yeah. into an aeroplane get it into the air to so that he could con the the hierarchy Udet and Co well, not that Udet was no fool but hmm. Milch Udet and Co and try and persuade them to, to give him backing yeah. funding uh, contracts well they saw the aeroplane fly that day when the engine could only be run for six months yep. six minutes yeah. and and then it had to be stopped, or at least the fuel had to be taken off because yeah. to keep the temperature down. And then they had to make a glide approach, basically. Yeah. Eric Vasich was the pilot. And uh, so it did a six-minute flight. Uh, it did it without anybody except the local employees watching on August the 27th, 1939. <laughs> but then the war broke out a few weeks later, so nobody could come and see the jet plane. Mm -hmm. So it was stuck in a hangar, and they, of course they had to re they had to redo the engine because uh, it had run yeah. for, six, for six minutes. <laughs> so they had to take the engine out and put the new mm -hmm. turbine in and so forth. And it sat in the hangar until November 1939. And then the uh, big wheels, Udet and Co. came to watch, mm -hmm. and it did a second flight. <laughs> But the engine failed on the takeoff, you see. <laughs> uh, just before liftoff, the engine failed. Mm -hmm. A fuel pump uh, um, sheared, and uh, the engine ran down on Eric Vosich, the test pilot. He's a slam on the brakes on and do a sort of bit of a uh, to spin the aeroplane round, really, to uh, ground loop it to, to, in order not to hit the bund at the edge of the <laughs> airfield. And um, and Heinkel jumped into his Mercedes and rushed out. And he said, What's the matter? <laughs> <laughs> and, and Eric Vosich said, Well, he said, the, 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 the fuel pump's gone. The, the, the engine just stopped. I had, to, I had to stop. So Heinkel said, Well, what am I going to tell them, you see? So he said, Well, tell them I burst a tyre. So Heinkel goes back in his Mercedes to see Udet. Udet, of course, was a World War One ace. Yes. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. And Heinkel says, oh, he's had a burst tyre, you see. So he abandoned takeoff. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Udet goes, oh, yes? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and, and Heinkel said, why don't we go to the um, cafe and have, a, have some lunch, you see. So he gets them all up there because they thought it would take a couple of hours to change mm -hmm. the fuel pump. They all went and had uh, a meal in the, in the canteen. And there's a lovely picture showing Hans von Ohain sitting next to Udet, looking terribly nervous. <laughs> and Udet looking very fed up. <laughs> and Heinkel standing pontificating, yeah. giving a little speech oh, lovely. See, with his specs on. Right. And he looked terribly Jewish. Mm. It's funny he managed to survive the whole <laughs> Interesting, thing. Interesting, yeah. Anyway, um, he... Uh, after a while, somebody came up and told, oh, I know, Udet said, right, well, we must get back to Berlin. We can't stuff around anymore. We must get back to work. So, and somebody came up to Heinkel and said, oh, they fixed it. It's ready. So Heinkel said, oh, aren't you going to see the aeroplane fly then? Mm -hmm. And Udet said, why, is it ready? He said, yes, it's ready. It's ready outside. Oh, all right, we'll come and see so this time it managed to take off. But of course, <laughs> the engines used up an hour, a minute, a minute as near as damn it. A yeah. minute, it wouldn't be a minute, it'd be yeah. 45 seconds or whatever, yeah. of its running time. So it didn't got really much left. So um, Udet, uh, sorry, Eric Vasich had its, it was started up and he took off and he flew around the airfield for three minutes, four minutes, something like that, then cut the power and, and glided in mm. and landed, you see. But of course, I suppose he could use the engine for taxiing. Yes. I don't know. Yes. But uh, 
Anyway, Udet wasn't very impressed because <laughs> the thing had his undercarriage down, of course. He, mm-hmm. He'd had his undercarriage down with the first flight because Heinkel had had the wheel wells fared over mm-hmm. for aerodynamic purposes to try and keep it as slick so that it wouldn't, you know, so that it could fly. Mm-hmm. And for the second flight, they, I think they activated the undercarriage. I, mm-hmm. I don't know this for sure, but the, the undercarriage looked apparently quite normal for the second flight with the not fared over in the wheel wells because mm-hmm. it had a retractable tail wheel as well as main mm-hmm. wheels. And uh, so, so for the second flight, I think Heinkel wanted Vosic to put the undercarriage up. You see, <laughs> now Vosic, no fool, <laughs> and it's a it's a shoulder wing monoplane and with a very odd engine. Mm. And I think that I think this is only me saying this. I think that Vosic very wisely <laughs> decided to leave the undercarriage <laughs> alone because you don't want to have a, a funny no. little engine like that. And one wheel down and one wheel up to land yeah. when you've got petrol because this thing was running on petrol, not kerosene. Oh, really? Yeah, mm. like uh, w- mm. so, quite dangerous. Mm. The, the Whittle engine always ran on the equivalent of kerosene. Mm. <laughs> anyway, so he did fly it that second time, but that's they're the only two flights mm. of mm. that particular engine. Mm. They then had to modify it tremendously to try and fit it into Heinkel's fighter, the Heinkel 280, mm. which was designed to take Herbert Wagner's engine, which had a very small diameter. Yeah. And, and so they had to try and make the von Ohain engine long and slim. So they, they, they altered it and um, modified it immensely, but it was still pretty useless. Mm-hmm. But it did power the Heinkel uh, HE280 uh, in April 1941 so prior to f- the first flight of the British aircraft mm-hmm. Heinkel's HE280 flew mm-hmm. very briefly mm. at a sort of demonstration it flew again it just flew around the airfield for a few yeah. few times and then landed again and I don't know how long the Ohain engine would after that the, after that flight, basically they gave up with the Ohain engine. It was scrapped. The whole idea was scrapped. Yeah. And von Ohain was put to work on another engine called the HE-011, which, which was quite a complicated piece of machinery with a compressor de- uh, designed, I think, by Helmut Schelp. And, um, and that was axial flow again? Or were they, no, uh, was... this was a, a, a diagonal flow compressor. Oh, yeah. So it had axial flow and centrifugal flow characteristics, mm-hmm. but was very difficult to build. Mm-hmm. And Heinkel complains in his book, Sturmischer Lieben, uh, he complains that, that just making one compressor yeah. took so many man-hours that it was really a waste of time. But the engine was good, mm-hmm. not bad. It had a thrust of about 2,800 pounds, which in those days was pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. But it was big, great big thing. It was really going to be used for turboprop use or something like that. Anyway, the war came to an end and, and, and nothing mm-hmm. came of it. So, Ian, as far as your father is concerned, May the 15th, 1941 was the day of reckoning, which was the first flight of the Gloucester E2839 with his engine. The first time that this had happened uh, in, in Britain. And I think Jerry Sayers was the pilot. What was that day like for your father? Well, our huge thanks to Ian Whittle for giving us so much of his time. And remember, part two follows soon or may already be there. Do keep an eye out for our next episode and indeed all our other podcasts. You can find them on our website, toplandinggear.com or wherever you normally get your podcasts from. And if you feel like subscribing to the pod, that would be great for us. It's completely free, of course. As ever, thanks for listening and bye for now.